Father, we come before you today recognizing once again your greatness over all things. Even as we have sung together, you are exalted king on high. You're exalted over the creation. You are exalted over underwater volcanoes and exalted over nations and exalted over the stars and furthest galaxies that our best far-seeing telescopes can't even see. The light streaming in all directions, beaming across the universe. We don't even know they exist, but you know them full well because you made them and you call them by name. You are exalted, glorious, powerful God. Lord, we are struck by the privilege that we have to be able to come before you. Lord, knowing that even as we pray that you are great enough, glorious enough, and yet close enough that you hear us as if we were the only person in the room having an audience with our King. Lord, we are humbled by this reality and this truth, and we worship you and we praise you today, even though, even though we are sinners. Even though we are creatures, we have rebelled against the Holy God. Lord, every single one of us in this past week has fallen short of our calling, fallen short of the glory of God, and we are in need of your forgiveness. We're in need of your grace. Lord, we haven't loved the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We've been self-focused and self-centered and selfish in our homes, in our marriages, on the internet, in our jobs. Yes, Lord, we thank you that by your grace we have not been as bad as we possibly could be, but we have not lived up to your glory. And so, Lord, we pray for your forgiveness. We pray your grace would be upon us and that you would cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Lord, we thank you that our acceptability before you is not based upon our performance, but based upon the sacrifice of Jesus and his performance of the law on our behalf. And Lord, we thank you that you receive us as your obedient children, pouring out lavishly your forgiveness and grace upon us. And Lord, we do pray for the needs in our community. Lord, we pray especially today for Doug and Ginger Bromley and for their son. We pray for their encouragement and we pray for their son even as he is in the hospital, even as he has trouble breathing and heart issues. We pray for him that you would heal him. And Lord, comfort and strengthen this family with comfort that only you can give. And Lord, we pray for all of those who cannot make it here today. Lord, those who are still continuing to connect online, we're thankful for each one of them. 
Lord, we pray for their encouragement and strength and pray for an end of this season so we can all reunite together. Lord, I pray for those who are gathered here, Lord, that you would empower us to do your will in this world. Lord, speak to us as we open your word. We thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open your Bible with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26 and verse 1. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 1. Today we are continuing on our series through the book of Matthew. Turning the corner into the last section of Matthew, the last of five sections in the book of Matthew. And this last section is the road to the cross and the resurrection. Now we are in the final week of Jesus' life, the final days of his life, the run-up to his crucifixion, his trials, his crucifixion, and then his resurrection. So the, the plan is, is to, this spring, is to go through these few chapters of Matthew, hitting the resurrection Sunday right on Easter Sunday in Matthew chapter 28. But today, Matthew chapter 26, and we'll read verses 1 through 16. And why don't you stand with me this morning in honor of the reading of the words of our God, if you're able. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he told his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the courtyard of the high priest who was named Caiaphas. And they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be rioting among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. By pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out thirty pieces of silver for him. And from that time, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words, and Lord, I pray that your word would speak to us, even as it already has been speaking to us. Lord, help me to stay faithful to unpack this passage and apply it to our lives today. Lord, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In our passage today, we have a story of extravagant love for Jesus extravagant love for the Savior. And the story of extravagant love for King Jesus is sandwiched between two passages that express people's deep rejection and hatred for Jesus. 
the rejection of Caiaphas and the leaders, and the rejection of Judas. Sandwiched between them, love for Jesus. Therefore, the title today, Loving Jesus in a God-Rejecting World. Loving Jesus in a God, in the midst of a God-Rejecting World. Have you ever known anyone who has sought to love Jesus more in the midst of a world that seems to reject all things Christ more and more and more? Ever known anybody like that? (laughs) Well, I think I know a lot of people like that. I think this passage really speaks especially to us today who are living in the midst of a God-rejecting society, in the midst of a Christ-rejecting society, in the midst of a world that is increasingly hostile to all things biblical, to biblical theology, to biblical morality, to biblical understandings. As As we continue on in this march towards eternity, in this march towards rebellion against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we who seek to love Jesus will be spoken to by precious passages such as this. As we read this passage, we resonate. We resonate with this lady, with this woman who expresses in the midst of God rejection, in the midst of Christ's rejection, she expresses her extravagant love for Jesus, just poured out on his head, poured out over his body, poured out on his feet. And so if you desire to love Jesus more, if you desire to love Jesus more in 2022, then this, this is a passage for you. This is a passage that will inspire you to love Jesus more in this year in the midst of a God-hating culture. So let's begin by setting the stage for loving Jesus in a God-rejecting world. The plotting leaders and the sovereign Savior. The plotting leaders and the sovereign Savior, we see them in verses 1 and 2, the context of this story of the anointing at Bethany. When we see Jesus has finished his Olivet Discourse from chapters 24 and 25, where he tells us about the fall of Jerusalem and the end of the age. And then immediately in the next passage, Jesus tells his disciples for the fourth and final time in this gospel that he is going to be handed over to be crucified and that he will be handed over in two days. Now think about it. This passage specifically tells us that it is the Passover The Passover is when the lambs were sacrificed. The lambs were sacrificed in memoriam of God setting his people free from slavery in Egypt. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. They remembered that time when God rescued the Israelites from this horrific enchainment to the enemy. Indeed, it echoes what God would do in the future, even in this passage, even in the passages to come, when God would set us free through the shed blood of the Lamb of God who would take away the enchainment of the sins of the world as Jesus sets us free from the ultimate slavery, and that's slavery to sin, slavery to death, and slavery to the devil. 
The Passover looks forward to the time when God would visit His people fully and finally and set them free from all oppression, especially the oppression to sin. The appointed time that Jesus would die for our sins. This was the time when the people would celebrate that time and remember that time when the wrath of God passed over the firstborn sons of all of the people of Israel. But this time, this time, God's wrath would not be passing over His firstborn son. God's wrath would be poured out in all of its fury against all sin that He had passed over would all be poured out on the sinless, obedient law keeping Savior. Oh, the echoes in this passage of the Passover and what Jesus would do as He bears the wrath of God as the Lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. Notice in this passage the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of the Savior. Notice that the means of this saving were chosen by God. The means of saving were chosen by God. Jesus would be handed over. He would be betrayed. Jesus predicts this in verse 2. He would be handed over. He would be betrayed. The means were chosen by God. The method was chosen by God. The Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. The means and the method both predicted by the sovereign Savior. That this is the way it is going to happen. It can happen no no other way. Hand it over. That would be the Jews gathered together, crucified. That would be the Gentiles gathered together. The entire world gathered together for a singular purpose, hatred for the Son of God. That's the depth of our sin in action. That's the depth of our need for salvation in action right there as the whole world gathers together against Christ. Not only were the means chosen by God and the method chosen by God, but the time is chosen by God as well. In two days, in two days, this is going to happen. This is happening by God's means, God's God's chosen method, and God's timetable alone. This is the sovereign Savior, the sovereignty of God in action in this passage. God in control of history the entire time. But at the same time, in verse 3, you have the plotting. You have the plotting of Caiaphas and his boys and the leaders in the courtyard. Now, I want to give an aside really quickly for those of you who may be skeptics, who may be kind of here, like, or maybe watching online and kind of like, I, I don't know if this is actually historically accurate. In 1990, in Jerusalem, they discovered a box. I want to show you a picture of the box. It's actually right here. This is a box. And it's a, sp- it's a special kind of box. It's actually called an ossuary. What is an ossuary? An ossuary is a bone box. It's what they would bury especially prominent Jewish people in. This box dates from about the Second Temple Judaism, which would be the time that we read in this passage. 
And this box actually exists now. You can go see it in a museum in Jerusalem. And on the side of the box is inscribed in Aramaic, Joseph bar Caiapha. Joseph bar Caiaphas, whom Josephus tells us is the Caiaphas in this passage. <laughs> this is a historical record of real accounts. This is a reliable account of actual events that the Bible reveals that in time and in history, the sovereign God saves His people from their sins, opening the door full and free to everyone who would trust in Him as Savior and Lord to be rescued from their rebellion and be set free to serve and love God, being invited and adopted into His kingdom because of God's grace in dying on the cross for your sin. Through repentance and faith. So Caiaphas calls calls a meeting of the key leaders of that community. It is not an official meeting. It's a backroom deal. And they launch a conspiracy in the courtyard to kill Jesus. But they decide that we're not going to do it during the Passover. Did you catch that in verse 3 and 4? We are, or in verse 5, we are not going to do it during the festival. We're not going to do it during the Passover so that there won't be rioting among the people. So we're, here we have the sovereign will of God. It's going to happen in two days. And the will of man, not during the Passover. Guess who's going to win? <laughs> and guess who's going to win every time? The sovereignty of God. And so here in this passage, we have this question. Was Jesus killed by humanity? Or was Jesus killed by the sovereign will of God? What's the answer? Yes! <laughs> Absolutely. Acts chapter 2, 23 says this. Though Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. There we have the sovereignty of God and the actions of humanity. Now, how do those combine together? I think an illustration might be appropriate here. And now, I will say this up front. All illustrations fall short when you're talking about the glory of God. <laughs> so, imperfect illustration, yet it has helped me out to think about this. So think about this. If I, I, am, I know the rules of chess, but I'm not a very good chess player. So let's say if I go and play chess versus the best chess grandmaster in the universe. Let's say beyond that. Let's say I go and play chess versus the best computerized, like Watson on steroids, grandmaster in all of the universe. I, the entire time, am freely moving my chess pieces exactly where I want them to be. But at the other time, the grandmaster is in charge of everything that happens on that table. <laughs> he is moving his pieces. He is moving everything in such a way where I will do exactly what he wants me to do, even though I have no idea <laughs> that that is happening at the same time. Now, interesting. How can both of these things go together? 
is because God is greater and higher and more sovereign than you can imagine. God is sovereign over salvation. Jesus died according to the plan of God. The Bible says that this is true from eternity past. Jesus sacrificed from before the foundation of the world. Now, how does this all work together? Explain this to me, Pastor. Well, we could go further into it and deeper into it. But at some point, you're going to get to the point in this study of this mystery of the will of man and the will of God or compatibilism or however you want to call it, you will come to a point where you just have to say, I am comfortable with a lot of mystery. I am comfortable where I don't have to explain every single detail about how God can be perfectly sovereign and at the same time, I make real decisions that I am accountable for. How do both of those things come together? Well, if I could explain everything, then there wouldn't be a mystery to it. And if there's never any mystery, I don't think we have what the Bible reveals to us as sovereign God. Jesus is sovereign in salvation. Jesus rose again from the grave. Listen, if you're not a Christian, my challenge for you is to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. Trust in this one who, from this very passage, says his intention from the very beginning was to die on the cross for your sins and rise again from the grave. If you have never trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord, I'd love to talk to you after this service. I'd love to connect with you more after this service. Or if you're watching online, I'd love for you to call me or text me or email me. Connect with our church in any way and, and let's talk about it. Let's go get coffee. Or if you live across the world, let's schedule a, 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 a Skype or something. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's do it. Trust in the Lord. Then we move into a passage that talks about, in the context of a God-rejecting world, we move into a passage that talks about worshiping Jesus extravagantly in a God-rejecting world. So as the powerful people are plotting, Jesus goes to a place where they would never go. As the powerful are plotting in the courtyard of Caiaphas, Jesus goes somewhere in verse 6 where he goes to the house of Simon the leper. Now at this point, we guess from the passage, he's probably a former leper, has receiving healing somehow. Perhaps God in his goodness through Christ has healed this one Simon. We don't know any more details about him, but indeed he has been healed at this moment, we assume. And Jesus goes over to his house. He goes over to Simon's house where Jesus will be loved and worshipped by a woman who is not even named in this passage. I find it fascinating that Matthew, who includes four women in the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew, who has been mentioning women all along through his gospel, in this passage, names by name, Caiaphas. He names Simon the leper. He names the disciples. He says the disciples are there. He names, he names Judas Iscariot. But this woman is not named. What is Matthew doing here? Why doesn't Matthew name her? She's named in John. We know that her name is Mary, but she's not named in Matthew. 
What Matthew is doing here is he's putting together a sharp contrast of a Christ-rejecting world and the lowly, Christ-exalting, Christ-loving, Christ-worshipping woman. The lowly woman worshipping in anonymity is higher in the kingdom of God than the chief priest acknowledged by the world. Better to be anonymous to the world and known in the kingdom of heaven than to have your bones on display in a fancy box in Jerusalem and not know God. Better to be anonymous to the world and known as a Christ worshiper in heaven than to have every single person downloading your videos, knowing your name, knowing who you are, and not having your name written in the Lamb's book of life. This passage talks about where is your heart? What are you seeking? What are you longing for? Are you longing for the accolades of the world? Or are you longing for the applause of heaven? Or you don't even care about the applause of heaven. You just want to live your life to make much of Jesus. To make much of Him and put the spotlight on Him so much that you just get off the stage and make space for the sovereign Savior who deserves all glory, all acceptation, all exaltation, everything that you've got in all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything focused on Him. That's a life that will be talked about as Jesus prophesies in this passage everywhere this gospel will be preached. That is a life worth living picture jesus eating around the table with the disciples and a woman comes forward and she holds an alabaster jar that is full of this expensive perfume probably worth according to the book of mark about thirty thousand dollars in today's dollars and she breaks it open probably been saving it for a special occasion maybe a wedding maybe something else but she breaks it open we don't know what she's saving it for but in that moment she fills her home with this beautiful fragrance of this costly extravagant gift that she sacrifices to worship jesus pouring it out on his head anointing him pouring it out on his feet the other gospels say that she is actually wiping his feet with her hair she is loving jesus with this extravagant costly love at that moment when she is in the depths of worship the discipleship internet trolls show up <laughs> internet trolls didn't start in 20 2000 or whatever <laughs> or 2009 when they intervented facebook or 08 the internet trolls are here in this passage um did you know that that could be sold to give to the poor you're doing it wrong <laughs> listen if you love jesus there will always be people that will say, you're doing it wrong. Even other followers of Jesus. And that's what's happening in this passage. Stand out and go beyond to love Jesus. And other people are going to notice and some will like it and some won't. And you just got to love Jesus anyway. Because the focus is on Christ alone. The focus is on Him. 
You may hear it in your family. Why are you getting so devoted to this religion thing? You know, there's a balance to life, and you're out of balance. You're, you're focused too much on religion. You ever heard that? I have. Why, why are you selling your house and moving to the Northwest? There's people that need to be saved here. Heard that. <laughs> why are you selling everything and moving to Central Asia? There's people that need to be saved here. It's true. It's true. But that's not what God said to do. <laughs> that's not the call of God on an individual's life. And so anytime you seek to worship Jesus, there may be people who are around you that will not receive this. And they weren't wrong. They even had a backup verse. In fact, the backup verse, just Jesus just said it at the end of chapter 25. At the end of chapter 25, Jesus had just said, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. It sounds a whole lot like at the end of chapter 25 that Jesus cares for the poor. So it makes a whole lot of sense to sell this and give to the poor. But at this moment, Jesus says, no. Quit bothering her. She is doing a beautiful thing for me. The poor are always with you. Jesus at this moment is echoing a passage from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 11. It says this, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Yes, the church should care for the poor. Yes, the church should care for the needy. Yes, the church should care for those who are our neighbors who have these practical needs that we ought to be concerned about and caring for. But here in this passage, we have a unique moment. We have a kairos moment. Now, in the Bible, in the original language, in the Greek, there are two words that can be used to describe the word time. There is the word chronos, which means like watch time, like clock time, like it's 846 time. That's the time. And then there, that's the chronos time, chronological time. That's like, what time is it? And then there's another word that you could use to represent time in the original Greek, and that's the word kairos. And that means a moment. That means a unique moment in time, a special time, a moment of opportunity. This, in the life of Mary, is her kairos moment. She may not have realized it, but at this moment, she was anointing Jesus for his burial. Jesus was about to head to the cross to die as the Lamb of God. She was anointing the anointed one in this moment, pouring out her worship. The point is, Jesus's point in this passage is this, you can care for the poor all you want, and you absolutely should, and the church that he establishes should. There's plenty of opportunity in the New Testament, plenty of verses in the New Testament that talk about care for the poor. But Jesus's point is this, unless you bring to them the good news of salvation, all of your care for the poor will go for nothing. Unless you bring them the priority of worship, unless you bring to them the priority of King Jesus that can save their souls from death, 
then you can fill a tummy, you can fill a stomach, but unless you meet the deeper need of salvation for sin, you're missing the whole point of what's going on here in Matthew chapter 26. Why Jesus came was not just to make us feel good so that we go help people, but make us holy so that we go out there and give the gospel to a world that desperately needs to know the Savior that's worthy of every extravagant sacrifice. Jesus here in this passage is giving us priorities of love. Love for God above all and love for neighbor that is never disconnected from the gospel of a dying Savior. Christ is showing what it really means to love those far from Him. Jesus in this passage reveals to us our priorities. Love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's that love of God that will inevitably lead us to love of neighbor. In fact, He is demonstrating how what love of neighbor looks like when He hangs on the cross as the anointed Son of God, dying on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for our sins. So what can we learn from Mary about loving Jesus? What can we learn from Mary about what, how we can love Jesus in 2022? We can learn several things. Mary took the initiative to love Jesus even when others were hostile or apathetic. Mary took the initiative. She goes back to the room. She picks up the treasured alabaster jar. She breaks it open and pours it out. That was the initiative. She did it in the context of Caiaphas, conspiring, Judas betraying, and the disciples grumbling and questioning, apathetic about what was happening in this moment. We see here in this passage, Mary is worshiping. She is sacrificing. She is loving Jesus. And when she does so, that love is tested and comes out refined. You know, true love, listen, true love takes the initiative. True love takes the initiative even when others are hostile or apathetic. It's true in marriage. Marriage, love in marriage, means this. Take the initiative to love and to pour yourself out and to sacrifice. Loving one another. Putting others above yourself. Dying to self so that others might live. That's what love looks like in marriage. That's what love looks like as a Christian. In the midst of an apathetic world, in the midst of many, not everybody, but in the midst of many Christians who are apathetic, in the midst of a world gathered together so much more against Christ every single day, where it seems like we are surrounded by antichrists, if not capital A, at least lowercase a, we know that in a world where we're surrounded by this antichrist ideology that we see even here in this passage, we are called to sacrificially love Jesus with worship extravagance. Mary took the initiative to love Jesus even when others were hostile or apathetic. Secondly, Mary was willing to sacrifice greatly to express her love for Jesus. She was willing to sacrifice greatly to express her love for Jesus. Remember what it says in the book of Mark? Mark actually says how much this costs. In today's dollars, $30,000 a year's wages. She pours out at the feet of Jesus. She pours out to anoint the anointed one. Extravagant love. I wonder if Christianity 
that doesn't cost anything is real Christianity at all. Because Jesus says, if anyone who would come after me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross every day and follow me. That's how Jesus described discipleship and Christianity. A Christianity that never costs anything and that's just kind of a, ah, oh, it makes me feel good. Or I like to have religious experiences. Or it just uplifts me. But it's always about me and never about pouring myself out in sacrificial love for Christ and sacrificial love of worship and sacrificial love of time, of spending in prayer and fellowship with Him, of sacrificial service towards others, of sacrificial serving in the nursery, of sacrificial serving in missions, of sacrificial loving your neighbor, of sacrificial fixing on the bus, whatever it might look like for you, however it might look like with your gifts and talents, if it never issues out in sacrificing to spend time with students or with younger people to pour into the, the good news that you know and just whatever you know, you can give it to them. If it never looks like that, sacrificing your sleep or even your recreational time so you can pray, study, or love one another, is that real Christianity? The kind of Christianity that says this is worth talking about is sacrificial Christianity. That's what Jesus says is the kind of worship that's worthy for talking about for ages and ages to come. Biblical worship always involves sacrificing the treasured for the greater glory of Christ. Biblical worship always involves sacrificing the treasured for the greater glory of of Christ. What else do we learn from Mary? We learn from Mary, thirdly, that Mary loved Jesus for who he was. Mary loved Jesus for who he was. Jesus is the greatest treasure of all. He's infinitely worthy of any sacrifice you could ever make. And she pours out her greatest treasure because really Jesus was her greatest treasure. Jesus called all other treasures and all other loves in this world to pale in comparison to the ultimate prize, the ultimate love, the ultimate treasure, the ultimate aim is Christ and Him alone. He is worthy of our worship simply for who He is. He is worthy of our talents. He is worthy of our time. He is worthy of our financial sacrifice. He is worthy of our minds, worthy of our thoughts, worthy of our families, worthy of our lives. He is worthy, 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 worthy. And He will never disappoint. And every sacrifice poured at His feet, He will see it. And He will recognize it. The more you love Jesus, the more you'll sacrifice to know Jesus. Listen, the more you know Jesus, the more you just like give up. I just want to know him more. I just want to know him more and more and more and more. This passage is about Mary's love for Jesus. But it's not only about Mary's love for Jesus. It's also about Jesus' love for Mary and Jesus' love for you. Here in this passage, we see also how Jesus loved Mary as well. How does Jesus love Mary in this passage? Jesus loves Mary by defending her. I love this. Jesus loves Mary by defending her. When the trolls come to question 
Mary's extravagant love, where the disciples come to question Mary's extravagant love, Jesus stands up for her. In the midst of a God-rejecting world, when it seems like you got no friends, when it seems like nobody's coming to your aid, when it seems like nobody is standing up with you, will anybody stand with you? Paul asked the same question when he talks at the end of 2 Timothy. He said, all deserted me. This guy's gone back over there. This guy, can you just please me, bring me a coat? Can you just bring me the parchments? Bring me the jacket? But oh, oh, he says, but at my last defense, at my last defense, the Lord stood with me. The Lord was with me. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will always stand up with you when your moment of isolation, when it seems like you versus the world, Jesus will stand up with you and he will defend you. He is your advocate. He is your defender. He is our ready defense. He's the defense of the defenseless. Psalm chapter 18, verses one and two says it like this. I love you, Lord. You are my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my Savior, my God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my strength, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. Jesus loved Mary by defending her, and Jesus loves you by coming to your defense in your hour of need. Jesus loved Mary by affirming her sacrifice. Jesus loved Mary by affirming her sacrifice. She's done a beautiful thing, Jesus says. She has prepared my body for burial. Indeed, Jesus continues to affirm her by the fulfillment of prophecy. Did you know that you came to a service where we would be fulfilling prophecy today? Did you know that? You're like, weird, pastor, this is getting weird. (laughs) What did Jesus just prophesy? Wherever this gospel is preached in the entire world, what she did will be remembered fulfillment of prophecy today wow how did jesus know that in an uninhabited desert in the middle of washington (laughs) it would be told one day it's told today (laughs) wherever this gospel is preached what she has done will be told in remembrance of her what about your sacrifice the thing that you think nobody knows or nobody sees or nobody cares or nobody recognized or nobody saw nobody seemed to notice what about that sacrifice that brings the criticism of your family what about that sacrifice that brings you in competition with the world or in great contrast with the world around you what in that what about that sacrifice that causes you to be rejected by the world does anybody see does anybody notice does anybody care the good news of this passage is that Jesus sees and Jesus notices and Jesus cares. And on that day when you stand before Christ, not one sacrifice for Christ will be forgotten. But he will look at you with all love and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. I saw you in the prayer closet and nobody else knew. I saw you singing that song by yourself and nobody else knew. I saw you bring that plate of food to your neighbor. Nobody else knew. I saw you go against the wishes of your family for the sake of Christ. Nobody else knew. I saw you love your spouse in that very difficult situation. Nobody else knew. But I saw. I saw. And I'll reward you. Well done. Well done. Finally, Jesus loved Mary by dying for her. Jesus loved Mary by dying for her sins. 
from this passage forward, everything is focused on Christ going to the cross. We come next week to the betrayal of Passover. We're going to preach on the Lord's Supper and take the Lord's Supper together next week. And then we move on from there to the betrayal and the arrest and the cross and the crucifixion. Jesus in this moment is preparing for his death. Mary anointed the anointed one for his burial. Jesus is going to love her by dying for her sins. And Jesus extravagantly loved you by very God of very God become man hanging on a cross bleeding and in agony dying for the sins of the whole world. Will you treasure him? Will you love him more this year? Will you give a greater sacrifice to Christ this year in love for him? We have a passage in verses 14 through 16 with another contrast. In verses 14 through 16, we find that not everybody loved Jesus. But there we find Judas selling Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. The book of Deuteronomy says 30 pieces of silver is the price of a slave. Judas selling out the Savior for stuff of this world. And a question rings over this passage that haunts me because I've seen people pay it. What's your price? Do you have a price to walk away? We live in a world where it's kind of cool right now to like Deconstruct, walk away from Jesus. What's your price? My prayer for you is that you would drive a stake in the ground and say, I have no price. Jesus is my priceless treasure, and I will never sell out. I will always love my Savior. Let's spend a moment in reflection. And then let's respond to what the Spirit is saying to us today. Father, we thank you for your great goodness, your great love towards us in Christ Jesus. Where you express extravagant love for us by dying for us, by defending us, by affirming and remembering our sacrifices. But Lord, it's only because of your prior sacrifice that we can sacrifice. And Lord, we recognize that nothing we could sacrifice would even really be worth in comparison to the glory that will be revealed to the even the glory and the value and the worth of gaining Christ and knowing Christ knowing you Jesus is worth more than everything in the world and Lord I pray for us Lord help us to be extravagant worshipers of Jesus 
Lord, to have an unconditional yes to whatever sacrifice, whatever thing you would want us to do, whatever thing you would want to sacrifice, time, talent, treasure, whatever it is, Lord, I pray it would all be laid at your feet this year to use us as you will, all for the glory of Jesus in the midst of a God-rejecting world. Lord, I pray that you would do that kind of work in our hearts and lives, raise up a generation of those who extravagantly love Jesus, even at great cost. And Lord, we know it will all be worth it because it will all be to your glory. And Lord, I pray for those who may not know you yet as Savior. And Lord, Lord, I pray today will be the day of salvation. And for the rest, Lord, I pray that you would deepen our love and devotion to Christ. Lord, we thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.